0: take your copy of the Word and turn back to Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, we were in Hebrews chapter 10 last week. We're going to go back to that text and um, focus in on two particular verses. And today's sermon is the last sermon in this kind of mini-series that we've had looking at the biblical realities of one another and uh, how, as a church body, we're supposed to function with one another. Um and this morning, we're, going to, we're asking the question and letting the text answer the question for us, how important is meeting with one another? How important is meeting with one another? And so this is the same question that we've, that we've presented each, uh, at the beginning of each sermon for the past couple weeks. Does the local church make any difference in your life? And if the local church, if Redeemer specifically, was missing from your life, would your life really be any different? The primary context of the biblical commands toward one another is the local church. This is where the primary channel of obedience happens for these one-anothers. New Testament letters were written to groups of one-anothers, primarily. We belong to a group of one-anothers called Redeemer Church, and we've designed our church membership and our church membership process to actually reflect this biblical value and principle of one another, and we believe in the importance of... Actually, we believe in the necessity of meeting with one another. And so, a a self-reflective question here before we get into the text. If you are prohibited by choice or by necessity from this weekly Sunday morning gathering, what effect does it have on your life? Let me ask the question again. If you are prohibited by choice or by necessity from this weekly Sunday morning gathering, what effect does your absence have on your life? If this gathering, if this weekly gathering was removed from your life altogether, would your life really actually be any different at all? Why is the gathering of believers, the gathering of the local church, so important? Well, as we've seen in the weeks leading up to this morning, we are members of one another, we belong to one another, we need one another, we are to love one another. And, so when when you aren't able to actually come together to worship with the body, do do you miss that weekly rhythm in your spiritual pilgrimage, or is your absence really not that big of a deal? So let's let the writer of Hebrews help us to think clearly about why we meet together. Why do we meet with one another? Hebrews chapter ten. Uh, we'll read verses nineteen through twenty-five. We won't go back through all verses. Um, But to understand where we're going in verses 24 and 25, let's read starting in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So the admonition we're going to look at this morning starts there in verse 24, but this this admonition is built on great rich doctrine that the writer of Hebrews walks through in verses 19 through 21 before we get to the actual command, let's, let's say let's, let's make a comment about God's commands just to help us to think rightly about the commands of Scripture. God's commands, all, all of God's commands in Scripture, are designed and are intended for our joy. God's commands are designed and intended for our joy. We have this false idea, Whether we would confess this with our mouths or not, functionally, this is the way it plays out in life. We we have this false idea that God's commands are are burdensome, that obeying God's commands will in some way ultimately make us miserable. We feel sometimes that obeying God's commands robs us from enjoyment in another area of life. We feel that obeying God's commands will cause, cause us to miss out on something fun or something better. We sometimes can feel as if God's commands are intended to merely keep us in line. But the essence of obedience is deciding that God's way is right. And God's commands are intended for our joy. And if they are intended for our joy, then God's commands are good. The text we read in our intentional prayer time just a moment ago, Psalm 19, verses 7 and 8, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The writer is going through all of these realities of God's command, whether he's referring to law or testimony or precepts or commandments specifically. And he's saying, these things are all good. And they are good for us. Jesus put it this way in John chapter 15. He says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you abide in my love if you keep my commandments you will abide in my love just as i have kept my father's commandments and abide in his and his love these things i have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full so before we look at the commandment in hebrews chapter 10 to meet together let's be reminded that god's commands are intended for our joy And so, therefore, God's commandments are good. And in our fallen society, fallen fallen culture in which we live, we have to constantly remind ourselves of this gospel truth. That God's commands are for our joy. And so, the, the command of, specifically, verse 24, is built upon two specific doctrines that we considered last week. We'll review them briefly. The first doctrine, in verses 19 through 22, is that Christ has accomplished everything necessary... And is himself everything necessary for us to be welcomed before God. And so he opened the way for us through his flesh, through the curtain that is his flesh. He is our great high priest. And so, therefore, we can and we must draw near to God only on the merits of Christ. And because we have the merit of Christ, God now sees us differently, our hearts to use To use the the language of verses 19 and 20, our hearts are sprinkled clean and our our, our bodies are washed with pure water. And so in Christ, and because of Christ, we are clean, we are righteous, and that is how God sees us. The first doctrine that the writer points out as he's going toward meeting together is that we are clean, we are righteous, and that is how God sees us. The second doctrine is that God is faithful to His promise. That's in verse 23. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for He who promised is faithful. God is faithful to His promise. And since God is faithful to His promise, we must, we should, and we can hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Now, remember the context here. The writer is addressing a certain group of Hebrew Christians who are under the pressure to bail out on Christianity. And they're not under just like pressure from snide remarks and things of that nature. They are, they are under literal persecution. Some of them in, very much in fear for their own lives. And so the major, the major admonition comes in verses 24 and 25, and this admonition is built on the doctrine of verses 19 through 23. So in light of the fact that, one, the work of Christ grants us access to God, and two, God is faithful to His promise, look at verse 24. In light of those two doctrines, the work of Christ grants us access to God, and God is faithful to His promise. Look at verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so the command here in verse 24 is to let us consider one another. So he starts with this command, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Then he moves on to how. So we'll just unpack these two verses and think how important is it for us to actually meet with one another. What priority should the weekly gathering of the local church have in our lives? So he says in verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another. The word consider there means to understand entirely, to perceive clearly. And we are considering how to stir up one another, which clearly implies that life-on-life activity is required. And so, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, we pushed back against isolationism, we pushed back against individualism. This is a, this is a communal reality as we are pursuing Christ together. And so in this considering, it gives us a, con- a continual statement and a clear statement. The continual reality is that we are to constantly consider one another. Our considering our consideration of one another is to be a repeated and continual action on everyone's part. This is not something where we just, okay, I've considered one another, so I can move on. But the language of verse 24 points to the fact that considering how to stir up one another is something that should always be on the forefront of our minds. Like this should always be part of why we do what we do. And so with that principle before us, let's ask a diagnostic question. How often do people in the church cross your mind? This helps us to know whether we're actually about the business of considering how to serve one another. How often do people in the church cross your mind? Is the congregation an afterthought, or is the congregation kind of one of those always-present thoughts for you? When someone is out, do you notice, or do you even care that that person is out? Now, just a word to us as a church, pastors and leaders aren't the only ones who are to be about this continual consideration. It's not just the pastor's business to make sure everyone is okay. It's not just the elder's business to make sure that everyone is okay. It's our business to make sure that we are okay, that we are functioning well. And we do that by considering how to stir up one another. The writer's not addressing leadership here. The writer is addressing the whole church. So this is Philippians two four. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Thinking about other people as the local church should be a constant reality for us. And not just pondering, but considering how we are to stir up one another. And so there's a continual reality, but there's also there's also a clear reality. We think about one another. The local church is the context in which the one another's of the Bible actually happen. We can't obey the one another's of the New Testament without one another. And so we must seek and we must strive to know one another. And, I mean, let's be honest and realistic here. At our side, there's no reason why we shouldn't know one another. I mean, there's, there's, there's no reason for someone who has attended for any amount of time... To not know names of people and maybe some backgrounds of people and those kinds of things because we are to be about the business of considering one another. And in fact, our knowing, our consideration of one another gives actually gives actual evidence that we actually belong to the one another's. First John three fourteen. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. And if we love the brothers, what do we do? We consider the brothers. We consider how to stir up. One another. So, what are we to consider here in this command? We are to consider how to stir up one another. The word stir up is translated in ESV, stir up is translated in other places as provoke or stimulate or spur one another on. It means to rouse to activity. Like we, we are pushing one another. And the word is usually used in the first century language in a negative connotation, more along the lines of like to irritate. Now, let's not take that too far, right? But you get the principle here. But this is not just some passive reality. This is all active. This is something we have to push toward. Our default is to not stir up one another. Our default is to go our own way and thereby let everyone else go their own way. But that's not the nature of the local church. The nature of the local church is that we are to consider how to stir up one another. And sometimes stirring up one another happens in gentle ways and sometimes it happens in firm ways. Where there are seasons of need or problems, we step in and stir one another up gently. Where there are seasons of correction and obvious sin, then we step in and we stir one another up firmly. And we need both the comfort of tender love and the confrontation of tough love as we're stirring up one another. We need the comfort of tender love and the confrontation of tough love as we're stirring up. One another. So, what does the writer say in verse twenty-four that we are to stir one another up to? Like, there's 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 a purpose in this. Like, there's something that we're pushing toward. We're not just we're not just going around agitating everyone, stirring everything up. This is not just oh well, they just they just all about the business of stirring the pot. That's not the the writer's intention at all. Notice what he says there in verse twenty-four. And let us consider how to stir one another, stir up one another to love and to good works. So we're stirring up one another toward love and to good works. So the design of our stirring up one another is that we would love rightly and that we would live rightly. Think about the two words that he uses here. We're stirring up one another to love and to good works. So first, love rightly. We want, we want one another to love rightly. I want you to want me to love rightly. And I want you to stir me up. To love rightly. And you should want the same from me. We stir up one another to love. And this further emphasizes the fact that we need one another. Because as humans, we can't love in isolation. For us, we are not love. We are not like God. God is love. God in himself is love. We experience love, and we express love, and we receive love. There has to be other agents around us for us to know this reality of love. And so we're created to love it's part of our being in God's image, and love and isolation is impossible. One writer put it this way, The local church is the place where love is most visibly and compellingly displayed among God's people. And so as we're thinking about how to stir one another up, we want our love and affection toward God and toward one another to actually grow. There's there's, there's no reason, there's no reason for someone to be part of Redeemer Church for two years and to be in the same place in regard to love. Your love and affection must grow. And how does that happen? That happens in the context of one another as we're stirring up one another toward love. We want one another to love rightly. We want to love God rightly and we want to love one another Rightly, and so we're stirring one another up to love rightly, but we're also stirring one another up to live rightly. This is where he says, "Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works." It's not just how we feel, but it's also how we act. How we act—that we want to love rightly, we want to live rightly, we want to stir up one another toward good works. We want your life of obedience toward God to grow. We want good works to be evident in your life. Not for some legalistic mindset, but for your love and your life toward God to grow. Now, the order is important here. We want to stir one another up toward love and good works. Not that good works are of lesser value. But without love, what are good works? Mere works of legalism, right? Mere works of self-righteousness. But empowered by love, what are good works? Demonstrations of love. And so that way, and you you know how this works. If someone comes to to confront you about a particular issue in your life, and you know that they are coming to you out of love, you're going to receive them a lot better than the person who comes to you, and you know they're not coming to you out of love. And so we want to love rightly, and we want to live rightly, and this doesn't happen in isolation. And both love and good works give evidence of the fact that we are actually Christians. How can I know that I am a Christian? Well, how do you love? How do you live? Jesus put it this way in John 13, verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have what? Love for who? For one another. So the fact that we actually love rightly and love one another rightly gives evidence to the the truth that we belong to God. So our love gives evidence of the fact that we're Christians, but also our life gives evidence of the fact that we are Christians. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 5, 16. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And we need One another to stir us up rightly to love and to life in the context of the local church. And so how does this this actually happen? How does this actually happen? And then he goes into uh, somewhat of an explanation of how you actually do this. How do you consider how to stir up one another to love and good works? In verse 25 when he says, he makes two statements. One, not neglecting to meet together. And then the second statement, but encouraging one another. And so we obey the command to stir one another up in two ways. One, we obey with our presence. Two, we obey with our participation. We obey with our presence and not neglecting to meet together. We need to be present with one another. And we obey with our participation, but encouraging one another. We are actively engaged. And the two expressions here in verse 25 are tied together in the text with the, with the conjunction there. But, and so you can't have one without the other. You can't, you can't separate these two. You can't just go up. Just being here isn't enough. Participation is required. And the so church requires our presence. So let's, let's ponder and press into this phrase, not neglecting to meet together. Does the Bible require that you go to church? Which would be a question that would come to us from quite possibly an unbeliever, or someone who professes to be a believer but then gives no evidence of being a believer, does the Bible require us to go to church? The answer from Scripture is emphatic yes. Absolutely. The assumption in the verse, in verses 24 and 25, is that a Christian assembly of some kind exists. And people must attend. And so we expect you to attend church gatherings because the Bible expects you to attend church gatherings. And I come to church gatherings not just so I can be the preacher for church gatherings, but so that I can be the church in these church gatherings. And he says we're to not neglect these gatherings. we not not neglecting to meet together. Not neglecting here means don't abandon, don't cease from an activity that has gone on for some time. We don't forsake, we don't abandon, we don't stay away from the meeting of the church. In our membership covenant, as some will affirm by joining as members today, we have a aligned uh, an expression of commitment on the part of members to Christ. Redeemer Church members covenant to regularly assemble together with the church body to worship God and encourage one another. And by signing, those who have joined, those who will join, those who will join in the future, affirm the nature and the importance and the primacy of meeting together as the local church. And so when he says here to meet together, not neglecting to meet together, it's literally the assembling of ourselves. And the, the New Testament word suggests and not just, not just kind of a, a, a somewhat kind of assembly, a, a not as important an assembly, but an official assembly of some kind, much as we would consider a worship service in our day. And so, by instructing this Hebrew church to not neglect the assembly, the writer is assuming that the assembly is actually happening. He doesn't say, hey, assemble yourself, he says, don't neglect meeting together. Like, there's this meeting. And apparently, there were some who were in the habit of neglecting, as we'll see in the phrase that follows after. And so when the church meets together, we should all be marked present. Not for everyone else's approval. Not for even our own approval. But because God has set this before us as a principle by which we grow in Christ. And when a member is not present, well then something is wrong. Something is missing especially when a member is not present consistently for a long amount of time. Something is wrong. And so we commit here at Redeemer to assemble as a church once a week on Sunday mornings. We believe that to be the New Testament pattern from the Gospels and in Acts and in some of the epistles. And we gather together on Sunday mornings to worship corporately, to worship as a body. And so this gathering is one that we should not take lightly, but that we should all be committed to actually attending and not just attending with our presence, but also attending with our participation. And then he gives this of this haunting phrase here in verse 25, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. And you kind of read that, and if you ponder that, you're just kind of go, what's he what's he referring to here? And so he's writing to a group that's obviously aware of some people who are absent, who are at some point present. And remember the context. The context is persecution. This local church is under intense persecution, often meeting in fear for their own lives, much like the church that is gathering in other parts of the world today. Their lives were literally at stake when they met together. Church, for them, was not just a matter of convenience, but it was a matter of life and death. So it wasn't an afterthought. As they, as they were trying to determine whether they are going to actually meet together, they had to really count the cost. Is it worth it for me to go to this gathering? Much like some of our brothers and sisters who are in China experiencing these things now. When, when they meet together, they know that the government at any moment can swoop in and arrest and destroy and even kill. And as is, as is the, the habit of some, reminds us that if, if, God, if God didn't dismiss their life or death reasons for assembling, why would he excuse our reasons for not assembling? Now, I don't think, I don't think any of us came in today in fear for our lives. I don't think you walked out with a hoodie over your head, with, got in a vehicle with dark tinted windows, and had someone drop you off around the corner and then snuck in because you're afraid for life. That's not our experience. And no one missed today for fear of life. But there is this principle at work in verse 25. We have to, we have to wrestle with the fact that this is, this is a possibility for all of us. We have to not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a leader in the German church who ultimately was killed for his faith by the Nazis, wrote this in his book, Life Together. It, together, it is by the grace of God that a congregation is permitted to gather visibly in the world to share God's word and to share sacrament. Not all Christians receive this blessing. The imprisoned, the sick, the scattered lonely, the proclaimers of the gospel in heathen lands stand alone. They know that visible fellowship is a blessing. They remember, as the psalmist did, how they went with the multitude to the house of God with a voice of joy and praise with the multitude that kept holy days, Psalm 42, 4. Therefore, let him who until now has the privilege of living in common Christian life with other Christians praise God's grace from the bottom of his heart. Let him thank God on his knees and declare, it is grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brethren. When you think about the gathering of the local church, what is your response? Is your response out of thankfulness? Is your response out of gratitude that in our culture and in our day, God has seen fit to put you in this context so that you could come to a meeting like this? By his grace and for his glory. And so we're not to neglect the assembly. If you're absent and you or others don't think much of your absence, you could be in the habit of neglecting the assembly. And so church requires our presence. We are required. The command there is to show up. is to be there. But also, church requires our participation. So, it's not just presence. It's not just enough just to come in the doors, find a seat, chill until the final amen, and then exit the doors, get in the vehicle, and go on to lunch. So, it's not just presence, but also it's also participation, according to verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. This reminds us there are no spectators, there are no bystanders in the worship gathering of the local church. Everyone is a participant. We are all participants together. The two expressions are tied together in the text. You can't have one without the other. This is why things that are becoming more prominent in our day, such as online church, virtual church, TV church, all of these kinds of expressions, these don't work. These don't work, especially in the context where we have the freedom and opportunity to gather with the saints on any given Lord's day. We need life on life, and life on life just doesn't happen without life. And so the local church is this, is this primary context in which the Christian obeys the 40 plus one another commands of the New Testament. Commands like build up one another, be devoted to one another, pray for one another, be kind to one another, fervently love one another, serve one another, bear with one another, care for one another, submit to one another, on and on and on. One another doesn't happen without one another. And so for us to obey one another, we have to be around and committed to and participating in the lives of one another. And so back to the text, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Do you realize, now think about this just for a moment. Now this should drive us all to humility and not pride. Do you realize that your presence in the gathering of the saints and your participation in the gathering of the saints is an encouragement to the saints? You have value. Every person in the gathering of the saints has value because of Hebrews 10.25. Well, I'm not the preacher. Well, I don't sing. Well, I don't do this. Well, I don't do that. Well, you don't have to be the preacher. You don't have to sing. You don't have to do this this or that to encourage one another. And so this is is a, a participation event for us. We have to do our part. Your presence is required. Your participation is required. There's no room for freeloaders. There's no room for free lovers in, in, in this reality that we call the local church. We encourage one another. And you encourage and you are being encouraged. You give encouragement, but you also receive encouragement. And you can forsake the assembling of, ourse- of yourselves together by giving your presence, but not by participating. And so when we sing, sing. And just, just open your mouth and sing. Well, I don't sing. Well, figure out why. Because the Bible's really clear. God has put a new song in our hearts. He's redeemed our souls and our mouths can't help but open and sing. As we're preaching, engage the text. Listen to the words. Consider whether they are true or not. Consider how you're to obey the preaching of the text. And we take the Lord's Supper together. Don't view the Lord's Supper just as another experience in the course of a week. But that this is a celebration of the body and life of Christ that was shed for us, that we as one another come together to celebrate and to declare. So it's not just our presence, but it's also our participation. We can go through, let's just be honest and realistic here, we can go through weeks, consecutive weeks, and simply be present, but never participate in the gathering of the saints. This is not the principle that the, that the New Testament lays out for us. We're to not neglect meeting together, as is the habit of psalm, but we are to encourage one another. We are to encourage one another. Why do we do this? One, we do this to combat the culture because that's a habit of some. You, you know it as well as I do. Committing to a weekly local assembly of believers is countercultural. There are people, quite possibly your neighbors who see your vehicle pull out and leave on the morning, your family members that you're leaving at home, who think that what you do each week makes no sense. And so this is a countercultural gospel activity. So we combat the culture, but also. So that we can live with urgency. This is the phrase at the end of verse 25. But encouraging one another and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. What is he referring to here? The day here is the reference to the day of Christ's return. Why use the return of Christ as motivation for the church to actually meet together and to encourage one another? Because here's the reality. Being a faithful Christian is not going to get any easier. In fact, the Bible points to the opposite. Being a faithful Christian is going to become more difficult as history continues to unfold and advance toward the return of Christ. 2 Timothy 3.1 In the last days, there will come times of difficulty. And when Paul was writing down to Timothy, you know what he thought he was living in? The last days. You think it's gotten easier as 2,000 years have passed? No. Hebrews 3.12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an and evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The writer of Hebrews recognizes the fact that it's going to become harder and harder to be a Christian, and to live faithfully as a Christian. And so this phrase here, all the more as you see the day drawing near, at the end of verse 25, is a reminder to us that we cannot live isolated, individualistic, long-ranger types of existence as Christians. And we actually need one another. We need the biblical, the, the general principle is true in Scripture as well, that there is strength in numbers. We encourage one another, and all the more as we see the day approaching. We need one another, and according to Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, we need to meet with one another. So let me ask you a question. What priority does worshiping with the body have for you? Are you inclined to neglect the assembly, either by your presence or lack or participation or lack? What priority does worshiping with the body have for you? How big of a deal is this moment in the course of your week? And I get it so often. We are prone to think that Sunday morning just helps us get to Monday. We get to Sunday morning. We get through Sunday morning, so we get to Sunday afternoon because Monday morning is coming. And according to the New Testament, the gathering of the saints on the Lord's Day is not to be just the collapse from a week lived in the world. The gathering of the saints on the Lord's Day is supposed to be like more like the climax of the week that is to come. And so we, we work hard all week so that we can worship well together as the body on Sunday. And So think of what happens in this gathering and also in our small groups as we meet together during the week. These are biblical realities that we can't experience outside of the assembly of the saints. One, fellowship. Corporate prayer. Singing together. Preaching. Celebrating the Lord's Supper and Baptism. Expressing and receiving church membership. Bearing one another's burdens. Discovering how we are gifted Sharing and meeting needs with one another. Rejoicing with one another. Biblical discipleship. So how committed are you to stirring up one another to love and good works? How how committed are you to meeting with one another? Here's the reminder. We've been saying it each week. You need us, we need you. I need you, you need me. And we all need Christ. And so it is absolutely, it's not just important that we meet together. It's essential that we meet together. So practically, as a church, we've designed our meeting schedule rather simply. We have two primary gatherings, a Sunday morning gathering and a small group, one of which will start this week. How will you encourage one another in these contexts? In these contexts, we learn and know how to encourage one another. And These contexts, we obey this biblical command to let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And we don't neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some. But we encourage one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. It's when we are truly, this is kind of a catchphrase for our day, when we are truly actually doing life together. Not just saying that's what we do, but actually doing life together. It's when we know and understand all over again and often all over again the beauty and the power of the gospel. And the primary importance that we have as the local church, to gather as the local church, is a witness to the world that we belong to someone else. We have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. And we believe it is of utmost importance for us to carve out a morning each week to come together to not just say we go to church, but to actually go to church. And to, as we go to church, to actually see the church. And when we gather, just just ponder for a moment what occurs when the church gets together. We come together collectively with the privilege and authority To worship the king of the universe. You ever just truly thought about this? We get to sit under the preaching and teaching of the word. God's designed method to build his church. We get to collectively stand and sing, not because we know songs or because we can read words on the screen, but because God has saved us. And if we keep our mouths closed for too long, we will actually just explode with rejoicing. And we have the privilege to come and to to rub life together with one another and to know one another. And to understand better how to pray for one another and to pray with one another. And to become aware of needs that we can meet together with one another. That happens here. That happens here. We get to celebrate new life through baptism in the context of the local church. We get to celebrate the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, remembering the death of Christ together as the local church. That that doesn't happen outside of this context. The Bible is clear. And so, as Redeemer churches, we continue to move forward as a church. We can't neglect meeting together as is the habit of some, but we have to encourage one another. Because you need me, I need you, and we all need Christ. And this happens in the context of one another. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we we are prone to, constantly tempted, Lord, to be Withdrawn and isolated. Lord, we, we hear lies from without, from within, that calls us to go in those directions. But Lord, your your word is clear that this is necessary for us. The gathering of the saints is not an optional activity for the Christian. The New Testament knows nothing of a Christian that's not connected with the local church. So Lord, help us to see. And God, by the authority of the Word, the presence of the Holy Spirit within us, point out ways that we are quite quite possibly guilty of neglecting meeting with one another. These are through presence or participation. And give us grace to repent. And to not neglect meeting with one another, but to actually encourage one another. Lord, thank you that when you saved us, you didn't save us, put us all to ourselves, Leave us to figure it out on our own. But when you saved us, Lord, you saved us into community. You saved us into the body of Christ. Universally and historically, all ages, all times and all places. But also into the body of Christ locally. And so may we be faithful as Redeemer Church. To not neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some. But to encourage one another. And all the more as we see the day drawing near. Thank you, Father, for the privilege that we have to worship you in this setting, in meetings like this every week. Guard us against treating these lightly or casually. Thank you for the gospel that makes any any obedience possible. We pray it in Jesus' good name. Amen.